0: Chapter 13 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Ernest. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley. The Saving of Peterson. Only action gives life strength. Richter. In 1875, the British Arctic Expedition steamed northward through Cane Sea in its attempt to reach the North Pole. Its commander, Captain George S. Nares, Royal Navy, thought it prudent to ensure a safe retreat by establishing a southerly base of operations where one ship should remain. Nares, in the flagship Alert, chose the dangerous and exposed winter quarters at Floeberg Beach an open roadstead of the ice-clad Arctic Ocean at the northern entrance of Robeson Channel. The discovery, under command of Captain S.F. Stevenson, Royal Navy, was laid up at a sheltered anchorage in Lady Franklin Bay, more than a hundred miles to the southward of the alert. An attempt to open communication between the two ships by sledge party failed in the autumn of 1875. With the return of the sun in 1876, after an absence of 150 days, it became most important to establish communication with the discovery at the earliest moment. From the alert, there was visible far to the eastward, on clear days, the mountains of northwest Greenland, which Nares wished Stevenson to explore instead of making a sledge trip to the Edda Eskimos to the south as originally planned. The heroic conduct of the officers attempting this journey and their success in saving the life of Peterson are set forth in this tale. The efficiency of every army and of every navy of the world is known only by the final and supreme test of active service in war, but it is plain that the essential attributes to success, skill, solidarity, and devotion to duty are acquired in times of peace. Nowhere are greater efforts made to cultivate these admirable qualities than in the Royal Navy of Great Britain, the most formidable of the world. Among its chiefs is the Second Naval Lord, whose duties lie especially with the hearts of oak, the men behind the guns, whose courage and skill are the very soul of the service. The Second Naval Lord has in charge the manning and officering of the warships, He plans the bringing together at a special place, and in a given time the mighty dreadnoughts, the tiny torpedo boats, the swaying submarines, and the swift destroyers. And he sees that gunnery, marksmanship, and other special training are up to the highest mark. Such a lord should, above all, be a man among men, one inspiring confidence both by knowing when and how times of peril should be met, and also through having himself done such service in earlier life. Such is the life history of Admiral Sir George Leclerc Egerton, who, passing from a high sea command to duty as the naval aide to His Majesty the King, rose a few years since to this lofty station and assumed its important duties. Great as may be the respect and high as can be the admiration of the world for efficient performance of public duties by officials of high station, yet the hearts of sympathetic and tender-hearted men and women are more deeply moved whenever and wherever they hear a tale of self-sacrifice and of heroic comradeship. Such is the story of this great naval lord, enacted by him as a sub-lieutenant far from the civilized world, on the ice-bound coast of a desolate Arctic land, for the safety of an humble dog driver. The nobler the heart, the greater is its sense of duty to helpless dependence in deep distress. And more heroic was the work of Lieutenant Egerton, flying his sledge flag, all that I can, than any done under his stately flag as a naval lord or as admiral of the fleet. When Captain Nares looked longingly southward from his ship on the Arctic Ocean, wishing in his heart for word of his assistant, he was not blind to the dangers and difficulties of the journey. The preceding September gallant Lieutenant Rawson, with strength and courage, had pressed on to Cape Rawson. The precipitous cliffs there made a farther journey by land impossible, while the half-open sea was covered with a shifting, ever-moving ice pack that made the ocean as impassable for a boat as the ice was for a sledge. Now, in late winter, the surface of Robeson Channel was covered by a solid, unmoving pack, but the cold was so intense that it could be endured in the field only by men of iron. Day after day, the temperature was 80 degrees below the freezing point, and even when it should moderate, the traveling party must be carefully chosen. Rawson was to go as a passenger, for his ship was the discovery to which he was now to return. Of all available officers, Egerton seemed to have physical and mental qualities that promised well. Naturally, the dog driver, for they were to travel with a dog sledge, would have been Eskimo Frederick. In this emergency, Niels Christian Peterson offered his services claiming that his Arctic experiences and powers of endurance fitted him for such a journey. A Dane by birth, his years of service in Greenland had made him a skilled dog driver, and experiences with Dr. Hayes in his expedition of 1860 had made him familiar with field service. A vigorous man of forty years, he seemed the best of the three sledgemen for staunch endurance in such ice and weather. Nair said in his letter of instructions, in performing this duty in the present cold weather, with temperature more than 77 degrees below freezing, great caution is necessary. The date of departure was originally fixed for March 4, 1876, the day on which the retiring sun was first clearly seen above the southern hills at 1130 a.m. The cold was intense, being 101 degrees below the freezing point. Whiskey placed on the floe froze hard in a few minutes. Egerton's departure was therefore postponed until the prolonged cold ended eight days later. Meantime, it was clear that such awful temperatures would seriously affect the dogs, who were suffering in short exercise marches from the action of the intense cold on the sharp, sand-like snow particles, all separate. Nares relates that in crossing the trails of the dogs near the ship he... Noticed lying on the floe, numerous frozen pellets of blood which always form between the toes of these animals when working during severely cold weather. The heat of the foot causes the snow to ball. This soon changes into ice and collecting between the toes cuts into the flesh. On board of the Resolute in 1853, we endeavored to fit our dogs with blanket pads on their feet, but these were found to increase the mischief by first becoming damp and then freezing, when the hardened blanket cut into the sinews at the back of the dog's legs. Footnote In my own expedition, we shod our dogs for travel in very cold weather with neatly fitting, thin, oil tanned sealskin shoes. Though a shoe was occasionally lost, as they had to be tied on loosely, the feet of the dogs were well protected. On March 12, 1876, Peterson threw forward the long, flexible lash of his Eskimo whip, calling sharply to the waiting dogs, and the party dashed off in a temperature of minus 30 degrees. Peterson, Rawson, and Egerton took turns on the sledge, one riding at a time. The others ran behind the sledge, holding fast each to one of the upstanders. Footnote. The upstanders are stout poles rising from the extreme rear of the sledge by which the driver is able to steer or direct the course of the sledge itself. The dogs ran freely with their very light load of 51 pounds per animal, for a full load would be about 100 pounds for each dog. An hour's travel in a crosswind, filled with the fine drift of sand-like snow so common in the Arctic made them all put on their blinkers, face protectors against the cold made of carpeting material, to keep their faces from freezing solid. Every care was taken by the watchful Egerton to guard against frostbites. Each quarter of an hour he stopped the sludge for a moment when each sludgeman examined the faces of his comrades. Whenever a whitish spot was seen, the warm palm of the bare hand was placed against the frozen flesh which at once thaws. Footnote. The rubbing of frozen places with snow, so often recommended, is most injurious in the extreme north. In my own expedition, it was once suggested to a man whose nose was freezing as a matter of joke. Taken seriously, the unfortunate man rubbed his nose freely. The sharp, sand-like particles of snow acted like a file and scraped off the skin so that it was a week or more before the man's face was healed. As closely as possible, Egerton followed the favorite line of travel along the high ice foot of the bold shore inside or outside as conditions required. This name is given to the ice ledge which forms by gradual accretion on the rocks or earth of the shore. As the main sea ice rises and falls with the tides, the ice necessarily breaks near the shore. The inner, fast adhering ice is known as the ice foot the outer ice as the main pack or the flow. The break is in the form of an irregular fissure called the tidal crack. In the period of the spring tides, when the tides have their greatest ranges, the main pack rises at high tide above the ice foot and through the tidal crack flows the sea, covering and filling the irregularities of the ice foot. This overflow freezes, leaving a smooth, level surface particularly favorable for sledge travel until it is broken up by pressure from the moving pack. Egerton found the ice foot in good shape for some distance, but now and then was driven to the main flow of Robeson Channel. The ice of the strait was a mass of broken, irregular blocks, often loose in arrangement and sharp in forms. Its surface and the difficulties of travel may be best likened to marching over great blocks of anthracite coal, save that the ice is bluish-white instead of black. The lieutenant made a short day's march, going early into camp to avoid overworking the unhardened muscles of man and beast, a sound practice followed by wise Arctic sledgemen at the beginning of a long journey. Even in good weather, the making of camp is the worst feature of Arctic travel. Everything is frozen solid, from the bread to the bacon, from the tent to the sleeping bags, which become as stiff as a board. Now conditions were worse than usual owing to the increasing violence of the blizzard. With snow-blinded eyes and a high, annoying wind, the putting up of the tent was most difficult, but it was finally done. This gave a wind-protected place where the cook could light his lamp, melt his snow for tea, and thaw out the frozen meat. Meanwhile, the two other men unpacked the sledge and removed the articles into the tent. It was found that the driving wind had sifted fine snow into the provision bags, the sleeping gear, and everything that was at all exposed. It was necessary but most tedious labor to carefully brush every particle of snow from each article before moving it into the tent. They knew that a neglect so-to-do would be felt the next morning through coatings of ice over their gear. While the cook was busy, the other sledgemen fed and picketed the dogs. If left loose, these domesticated wolves might possibly return to their fellows at the ship, where good food and fighting company were to be had. If they remained at the camp, a loose dog would swallow down everything in the shape of skin, hide, or food. More than once an arctic tenderfoot has wakened to find his means of travel vanished, Sledge thongs and dog harness entirely gone down the capacious throats of his ravenous team. Egerton, alive to the situation, carefully stored harnesses and camp gear in the tent with the provision bags. So bad was the weather that it took six hours of steady labor to make camp, change foot gear, cook, eat, and enter their sleeping bags. With the night passed on the blizzard, and morning came, clear, calm, and bitter cold. Even in the tent, the temperature was 42 degrees below freezing. Frost-bitten hands, ravenous dogs, slowly melting snow, and the watched pot that never boils made slow the striking of camp. It was five and a half hours after leaving their sleeping bags before they were getting a spark of warmth into their benumbed limbs by steady travel over the Arctic Trail. Though it was bitter cold, the dogs kept taut their traces, and progress was rapid for several hours. From time to time, Peterson would sigh, and to Egerton's question, what is the matter, answer that it was only a pain that would pass. But Egerton felt anxious, as the Dane fell back now and then, and when he said that the cramps in his stomach were terrible, halt was made in a sheltered spot where the cooking lamp could be lighted. In a half hour, a bowl of boiling hot tea was served, the finest known restorative of vigor and warmth in cases of Arctic exposure, far surpassing rum, brandy, or any alcoholic stimulant. The Dane ate neither the offered bread nor the bacon, and indeed of the latter, Egerton said that it was frozen so solidly that even a well man could not put tooth through the lean parts. Soon they came to very bad traveling across steeply inclined snow slopes along the bordering cliffs of the ice-bound sea that they were forced to follow, In one place, the trail led to a snowdrift 30 feet across, whose steep seaward face ended on a rocky ledge with a sheer outward fall of about 30 feet. It was clearly impossible to move the sledge across, and, alpine glacier fashion, a road was slowly hewn out with pick and axe. In other bad places, the loaded sledge plunged headlong from the top of high hummocks into masses of rubble ice in the intervening valleys. In such work, animals are quite useless, for the Eskimo dog pulls hard and steady only under conditions where the sledge moves constantly forward. When once stalled, the dog team sits on its haunches, welcoming a rest, and watches events composedly. In such cases, the skilled driver untangles the traces, straightens out the team calls out shrilly, cracks his whip loudly, and, as the dogs spring forward, gives a timely and skillful twist to the upstanders, which helps the sledge to a new start. If the sledge does not then move, it must be unloaded and the dogs again started, or it must be hauled by manpower to an easier part of the trail. This exhausting labor fell on the young officers, as Peterson was so sick as to be unable to do his part. Standing around, the Dane began to lose that warmth of vigorous circulation that alone keeps a man alive in arctic cold. When finally the dog driver was seized with fits of spasmodic shivering and his face showed frequent frostings with bits of seriously frozen flesh, Egerton became greatly alarmed. As they were then making their way through very bad ice, camping at once was impossible. From time to time, however, the officers, quitting the sledge, took the sufferer in hand, and by five or ten minutes of work would get him so thawed out that he could safely go on. When a good camping place was reached, though they had traveled only six miles, Egerton at once stopped, hoping that a good night's rest with warm drink and food would bring the Dane around. The moment that the tent was up, Egerton sent Peterson in with directions to change his clothing, get into the sleeping bag, and make himself comfortable until dinner was ready. Meanwhile, the officers unloaded the sledge, picketed the dogs, and cared for the camp gear. On crawling into the tent, Egerton found Peterson groaning, and on examination was shocked to find that he had crawled into the sleeping bag without changing his clothing. Especially bad was his failure to replace his damp footgear by dry socks, a practice of recognized necessity in Arctic travel to prevent the feet from freezing at night. As he was groaning and complaining of much pain, Egerton set to work to relieve him. Finding that both of the hands and the feet were severely frostbitten, the man was made to strip of all his clothing, damp with the sweat of travel, and put on dry undergarments. While Rawson was busy making tea, Egerton set himself to the labor of thawing out the frost and of restoring circulation by chafing the hardened limbs with his bare hands, a long and difficult task. The sick man took a little hot tea, which his stomach would not retain, but a dose of sal volatile, ammonia, with hot rum and water gave temporary relief. A high wind arose, and the cold became most bitter, the temperature in the tent falling to fifty two degrees below the freezing point. With a cold that would nearly solidify mercury added to their mental troubles, the sufferings of the party were extreme. The hands, face, and feet of the invalid suffered repeated frostbites, which the devoted officers were hardly able to remove. Exhausted as they were by the hard and unusual labors of the day, sleeping only by snatches, they took watch and watched to care as best they might for their sick comrade. Suffering extremely themselves from the cold, they spared no efforts to give such personal services as might comfort and benefit him. Again and again they restored a the circulation to the frozen parts by chafing alternately with their naked hands and by the application of flannel wraps heated by their own bodies. Such a night seemed endless with its cares, its privations, and its anxieties, and unfortunately the continuing gale made it impossible to move when dawn came. It was with great relief that they learned from the Dane that his cramps had nearly disappeared, after he had taken his breakfast of hot cocoa and soaked biscuit. This gave way to renewed anxiety when, a few hours later, Peterson was attacked by violent and recurring fits of ague, which they hoped to dispel by wrapping him up closely in all the available robes and flannels. Egerton no longer thought of going on to the discovery, as it was now a question whether or not the Dane would perish before he could be got back to the alert less than 20 miles distant. While knowing that travel in such a gale would be fatal to one, if not to all, it was certain that death would come to the Dane if they remained in the tent with a cold of 56 degrees below freezing. Rawson and Egerton agreed that the only chance of prolonging life lay in building a snow house. Casting about, they found conditions unfavorable for a regular hut, and so decided to burrow a refuge hole in a great snowdrift not far from their tent. First they sank a shaft six feet deep to a solid foundation and thence undercut a tunnel inward for some distance. At the end of it, they hollowed out a space eight feet square and four feet high. This work was intermittently done as, from time to time, they had to return to the terrible duty of thawing out and restoring circulation to the limbs of the freezing man. Within six hours, however, they had the shelter done and the Dane removed to it. Both tent and sledge were drawn over the passageways so as to keep the cold air out and the warmth from their bodies within. The cold being still intense, they ran the risk of asphyxiation to ensure Peterson's comfort. Closing every crevice through which could come a breath of air, they lighted their cooking lamp and thus raised the temperature to seven degrees above zero. Fortunately, such transpiration of fresh air took place through the snow as saved them from harm. The day passed in this manner, small quantities of food being taken from time to time by the sick man only to be rejected later. Indeed, the only improvement in his condition seemed to come from those strong and dangerous, though effective, restoratives, rum, and ammonia, and these were almost always followed by physical relapses. Answering repeatedly to inquiries that he was warm and comfortable. In making him ready for the night, they found that his feet were perfectly jellied from the toes to the ankles, and that his hands were nearly as benumbed. Realizing that he was nearly in extremities, Egerton and Rawson renewed their devoted efforts. Each officer took a foot, stripped it naked, and set to work to warm it by rubbing it with their bare hands. When circulation was somewhat restored, they applied flannels warmed against their bodies and replaced them as the used pieces became too cold for service. The hands were similarly restored to warmth after two hours of steady work. When the limbs were wrapped up in the thick, dry, and warm coverings, they thought that the crisis was over. During the night, Egerton was awakened to find the Dane worse than ever. Quite delirious, he had crawled from his sleeping bag, began to eat snow, and exposed his uncovered body to the cold. Ague Fitz attacked him, his breath came in short convulsive gaps, and circulation was almost entirely suspended even in his body. Then followed the same awful and tedious labor of thawing the man out and of guarding against a repetition of such irrational conduct. With the coming morn the weather was found to be nearly calm, and to their great surprise the condition of Peterson was somewhat improved. As it was certain death to remain where they were, Egerton decided to start on the journey to the alert 17 miles distant. Though exceedingly feeble, Peterson thought that he could make the journey. Egerton promptly abandoned everything except tent, sleeping gear, and food for a single day. Over the first part of the trail, most dangerous for a sledge and very rough, Peterson managed to walk under the stimulation of rum and ammonia. When he fell, prostrate and unconscious, on the icy road, and could go no farther, he was put into a sleeping bag, wrapped in warm robes, and lashed securely to the sledge. The terrible conditions of the homeward journey must be imagined, for they cannot well be described. Once the sledge was precipitated down a crevasse twenty-five feet deep, the sledge turning over and over three times in its descent, hurling the dogs in all directions. With beating hearts, the officers scrambled down in haste to Peterson, expecting to find him badly injured, but almost miraculously he had escaped with a few bruises. At another point, Egerton, who was driving, stopped the team to clear the harnesses, a frequent duty, as the antics of the dogs tie up in a sadly tangled knot the seal thong traces by which the sledge is hauled. With one of its occasional fits of uncontrol, the team started on the jump and dragged the spirited Egerton, who held fast to the traces, a hundred yards through rough ice masses before he could gain control. Whenever a stop was made to clear harness or to pick a way through bad ice, the officers went through the slow and painful duty of thawing out Peterson's limbs. Save a brief stop for hot tea to give warmth to and quench the thirst of the invalid, they traveled ten hours, and when in the last stages of physical exhaustion had the inexpressible happiness of bringing their crippled comrade alive to the alert. With a generosity in keeping with his heroic conduct toward Peterson, Egerton ascribed his final success to Rawson's labors, for in his official report he says that high praise is due Lieutenant Rawson, For the great aid derived from his advice and help, without his unremitting exertions and cheerful spirit, my own efforts would have been unavailing to return to the ship with my patient alive. In these hours of splendid devotion to their disabled comrade, these young officers, absolutely disregarding personal considerations, displayed that contempt for external good which Emerson indicates as the true measure of every heroic act. End of chapter 13. Recording by Mark Ernest.